Good morning. My name is Brooklyn Griffin, and I've been coming to Faith for the past five years, and I get to serve currently in the preschool wing here on Sunday mornings. Um, and today's scripture reading is going to be from Acts chapter 1, verses 15 through 26. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Junus, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he had numbered among us and was allotted this share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language Al-Kazama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. The temple, seeing Peter and John about... Oh, I flipped an extra page. Hold on. So one of the men who had accompanied us during the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day which he had taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to the, his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who is also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the heart of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned, turned aside to go on his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. This is the word of God. Thanks, Brooklyn. Good morning to each of you. I'm glad that you're here today. If you have been a follower of Christ for any length of time, uh, it's very likely that something has happened in your life. You've experienced something that has shaken you and that threatens your confidence in God. Let me give you just a few examples. I talk to a lot of people who've had their church horror story, right? Something horrible has happened in a church. I've had, I've had mine when I was 12 years old. I experienced the ugliest type of racism in my home church in South Mississippi. I saw people yelling at each other in a church meeting, saying words out loud that should not be spoken. And as a kid, it just, it just shook me. I mean, it was, church was not a safe place. Many of you have your church horror stories. Chances are uh, you have been hurt by another follower of Christ. They've said something. They have done something that's been very painful to you. I think in our culture, most people would say that they've been hurt more by people inside the church than people outside the church. I think there are reasons for that. It's, it's been my experience. Can I say that out loud? Uh, and it, it shakes us. You know, our confidence in God would say, it, it makes us question, is God, is God really really in charge? Is God paying attention to what's happening to me? Or for you, it may be it's some, some, something that uh, you have a, you've had a need, I mean a legitimate need. It might involve your health. It might involve a relationship. It might involve uh, some anxiety, some fear that you have about the future, and you've poured out your heart to God. You've prayed, and your perception 
is that God has not heard your prayers, that God has not come through for you the way you would have expected him to. I had a friend one time, and uh, she was in a, a situation. She felt like she did everything right. She prayed, she sought counsel, and she followed what she thought was the will of God, and it ended up an uh, incredible disaster, incredibly traumatic, actually. And her comment to me was, if that's how God treats his friends, I'm not so sure I want to be God's friend. So many times it's not what happens to us, it's, it's, what, it's how we interpret what happens to us. And it's a lot like in, in relationships with other people. If you don't trust somebody, if, you're not, if you lack confidence in them, you're not going to take risks. You're actually going to do the opposite. You're going to keep your distance. You're going to play it safe. And if we don't trust God, if we don't believe that he's paying attention, that he's competent to take care of us, no matter what happens to us, the same thing is true. We'll keep our distance. We'll play it safe. We won't risk much, if anything. And that's a big deal in light of what we saw last week in, in the first half of Acts chapter 1, because there we saw that Jesus gave this, this assignment to the church. He told his disciples, he tells us, uh, you will be my witnesses, both near and far. And so you're going to tell people, this is what I've experienced, and you can experience it too. And if we aren't confident in Christ, if we aren't confident in his plan, we're not going to be like the early church. We're not going to risk anything to represent him well in this world. Well, it turns out, you may have noticed in the passage that Brooklyn read, that, that in the early church, there was a situation, an unresolved issue, that had the potential of shaking them. It had the potential of making them question their confidence in God. And that, that unresolved issue was Judas's betrayal of Jesus. He was in Jesus' inner circle of 12 disciples. Jesus had chosen him, and yet he betrayed Jesus. He went to the Jewish authorities. He had insider information. He knew when Jesus would be alone, away from the crowds, and he was handing Jesus over. He was saying, I can deliver him to you for the right price. And they settled on 30 pieces of silver, which is what a, a common laborer would, would earn in four months and so for a rather modest sum of money, Judas betrayed the Son of God. And when he, he realized that Jesus was condemned to death, he took his own life out of remorse. And you can imagine how troubling this would have been to the original disciples. I mean, all sorts of questions. I'll just mention a couple. Number one, uh, Jesus had chosen him. You know, what, what does that say about Jesus's judgment to choose a traitor and a thief, and he was the treasurer, no less. And the other question was, now they need to find a replacement. You know, the, the, the apostles represented the 12 tribes of Israel, and they only had 11, 11 apostles. What confidence did they have in choosing the 12th man here? And so these, this, these issues were, were unresolved on the table. And in Acts 1 verses 15 through 26, Luke explains how they addressed these two issues. And what brought them great confidence can also bring us great confidence. And so they addressed, first of all, Judas's betrayal, and then they addressed Judas's replacement. And in doing so, Luke gives us two reasons why we can have confidence in Jesus when we are shaken by the things that we've experienced. 
inside the church and outside of the church. And if we have confidence in Jesus, then we can have confidence in his plan for the nations. The first reason for confidence in Jesus is God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty. Beginning in, uh, here in Acts 1, we see Peter is a transformed man. If you read the Gospels, especially Luke, Peter's the one that was always second-guessing Jesus. He's the one that's always resisting the plan. But here in Acts 1, he stands up and he has this profound understanding of the Scripture. And he has this, this deep confidence in the sovereignty of God. This is what he says. This is what Luke says in verse 15. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. And in in the the New Testament, the the term brothers is often used to describe a group of people gathered, both men and women. We know that was the case from the previous verse. But he stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. And he said, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. We go back to verse 16. We want to look at some of the details there. First of all, Peter says the scripture had to be fulfilled concerning Judas. Uh, both the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts uh, emphasize over 40 times, as a matter of fact, that everything written about Jesus in the Hebrew Scriptures had to be fulfilled. This is sometimes called the divine imperative. Something had to happen according to the sovereign plan of God. And and, uh, uh, this language is used to stress that the events of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension, they all happened within God's sovereign plan. And Peter says that the Scripture had to be fulfilled. Notice how he expresses it. He said, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand uh, by the mouth of David. And so statements like this form our understanding of the inspiration of Scripture. And so we understand that the Holy Spirit spoke through human authors to communicate the message that God wanted to be communicated. And so the result is the inspired word of God. Here Peter says the things the Spirit prompted David to write about his enemies ultimately found their fulfillment in Judas. And we'll discuss the specifics when we get to, to verse 20. But for now, note that Peter wanted those gathered to understand that Judas's betrayal, it was not some unexpected development that caught God off guard. No, this this actually had to happen. This was, this was foretold through the life of David. And it certainly wasn't, the betrayal of Judas certainly wasn't a skeleton in God's closet. It was not something, we need to cover this up, because this is absolutely embarrassing. The book of Acts is very transparent about the sins of people, about the missteps of the church, and, and God's got it covered and so, as a matter of fact, Peter says this was a divine necessity that a traitor had to be numbered among the apostles. And remember, 
Peter got this wisdom because Jesus had been appearing to them over the 40 days between his resurrection and his ascension. And he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And the logic is that since David experienced betrayal by a close companion, the one who would sit on the throne of David forever, Jesus, the Messiah, also had to be betrayed by a close companion. And so it turns out that Jesus knew exactly what he was doing when he selected Judas to be part of the inner 12. Judas' betrayal was simply one of the many things that had to happen according to the sovereign plan of God. Why? Because Jesus came to give his life as a ransom for many. Judas had a part to play in that plan. Now, when we talk about the sovereignty of God, different things come to different people's minds, right? And when I say that God was sovereign over Judas's betrayal, we don't in any way imply that Judas was not responsible for his actions. To the contrary, he was fully responsible for what he did. And yet God was sovereign even over Ju- Judas's betrayal. To take it one step further, uh, we learn in Luke 22 that uh, right before Jesus, Judas betrayed Jesus, it says Satan entered Judas. And so we have to conclude that Jesus is also sovereign over Satan. And so the sovereignty of God covers it all. Somehow all these things fit within God's sovereign plan. In verses 18 and 19, Luke makes a parenthetical uh, statement just to, uh, to his readers about Judas to fill in some details. He says, now this man, Judas, acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out, and it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And so every, everybody knew this, so that the field was called in their own language, a kaldama, that is, field of blood. The only other account of Judas's death is found in Matthew 27. And if you read that, uh, the, the, uh, some of the details uh, read quite different from this. And so there's not, they're not contradictions, they're complementary. And they can, can certainly be, be harmonized with one another. But the bottom line is, is the, these 30 pieces of silver that Judas had been paid. He threw them back and the Jewish authorities took them and they bought this field. It might have been the field where, where uh, Judas had, uh, had taken his own life, but it was known as the field of blood, possibly because of the blood money, possibly because Judas had spilled his own blood there. But um, it was, the money was used to purchase a field and it actually became a burial place for strangers. Uh, That was the reward of his wickedness. Come down to verse 20, and Peter's speaking again, and he mentions two psalms that had to be fulfilled, and uh, fulfilled through Judas. And uh, verse 20, it says, For it is written in the book of Psalms, and this is from Psalm 69, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it. And we'll look at the second one, uh, second Scripture in our, in our second point. <clears throat> well, the first Scripture Peter mentioned, uh, in six, Psalm 69, David is speaking about his enemies and wh- how he had suffered innocently uh, at, their, at their hand. 
uh, people hated David without a cause. And so David cries out to God to punish his enemies. And in verse 25 of Psalm 69, he says, May their camp be a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents. That would be justice for David's enemies. Here in Acts 1, Peter says that Judas' death was the ultimate fulfillment of David's cry for vindication uh, from God. And so like David's enemies, Judas had brought innocent suffering upon Jesus. Like David's enemies, Judas hated Jesus without a cause. And Judas fulfilled the faith that David wanted for his enemies because his camp, his field, became desolate. It was actually a graveyard. Nobody lives lives in a graveyard. And so uh, it was a place that uh, fulfilled, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it. And so even though Judas's life and his death were supremely tragic, somehow it fit under the sovereign plan of God. And that those 120 gathered there, they needed to know this. God was not asleep. He was not negligent when Judas became one of them, when Judas betrayed Jesus. Somehow, it fell under the umbrella of God's sovereignty. And surely, that gave them confidence as they prepared for the Spirit to descend. They prepared to become witnesses. And so, the sovereignty of God, the same sovereignty of God in our lives and our situations can give us confidence when things have shaken us and when, when the, our confidence in God and in his plan for the nations is threatened. And so we need to understand that. When the, when the worst possible things that happen to us, we think it points to a failure in God's, God's plan. Actually, the opposite is the case. God never, never abandons us. He never neglects us. Now, like with Judas, let me, let me make clear what I don't mean when I mention the sovereignty of God. Again, I, I'm just aware that, that this, this is a term that, that just it has all sorts of connotations for different people. So when I talk about the, the sovereignty of God, and I think when the Scripture talks about the sovereignty of God, we're not saying that God has orchestrated terrible things in your life and he has brought it, out, brought it about. God is not the author of evil. We live in a fallen world. And so we're, we're not saying that. And if other people have sinned against you, that's on them, just like it was on Judas. It is not on God when other people sin against you. And when we talk about the sovereignty of God, we're not saying that we can always figure out exactly why God did what he did when he did it or when he didn't do something. Uh, go to the book of Job. Job never got an explanation for what had happened to him. But what I am saying is that just as, as was the case with Judas' betrayal of Jesus, the hard things we've experienced somehow fit into the sovereign plan of God. God is never negligent. God is never asleep when we experience these things that shake our world. You know, I've thought a lot this week about uh, various things in, that I've experienced as a Christian and as a pastor, things that uh, really shook me. And as I've thought about it, there are things I've experienced that I would never, ever want to experience again, things I would never want you to experience. But if I could rewind the clock and I could 
and I could somehow now from where I'm standing, and I could now not experience those things, I wouldn't do that. Why? Because the things that God did in the dark times are priceless. God taught me things. God humbled me. I experienced his tenderness in those tough times that I may have never experienced before. I learned things in those times that I have absolutely needed in the years since. And I can remember being in the middle of situations, and the only thing I wanted, the only thing I wanted was for it to be over. I just wanted it to be done. God, give me some relief. And, and God, God did not seem sovereign in those situations. It seemed like I was in a free fall, to be honest. But in the rearview mirror, and I'm not talking about last week, I'm talking about years ago, as I look back, I can see how God was absolutely sovereign. I can see how God used the things that I never wanted in my life for his good. And some of the things I learned are really foundational to my influence in the lives of people, both Christians and people who don't yet know Christ. And I try to be as transparent as I can be about what, is, what I've experienced and what God has taught me in the dark times. And so I absolutely see God has been sovereign in my life. And if you're in the middle of something, if you're shaken right now, this may be hard to hear, and uh, you, may have to, you, have, you may have to process this before you say, yes, God is sovereign. Uh, but, but there are many people in this room that would tell you what I'm telling you also. James 1 is true, is that uh, the testing of our faith produces endurance. And if you allow it to, endurance will have this result where you will be mature. You won't lack any good thing God wants in your life. And you will have a depth. You will have a voice. You will have this, you, when you talk about the gospel to people, you talk about who God is. It won't be information that you're sharing. It will come from a deep place in your heart, and you will have this, this ring of credibility because you've experienced the goodness of God in ways that you never thought possible. And so the sovereignty of God, understanding, believing the sovereignty of God, is something that, that gives us this great confidence in, in Jesus and his plan for the nations. The second reason for confidence involves God's leading. <clears throat> we finally get to casting lots. This is, what, uh, this is what this passage is known for. But The second scripture that, that had to be fulfilled is in the second half of verse 20. It says, let another take his office. And that expression is found in the middle of a, a block of verses in Psalm 109, where David is again crying out for vengeance against uh, his enemies. In Psalm 109.8, he says of one of his, his uh, uh, betrayers, may his days be few, may another take his office. And Peter understands that this will be, this will be fulfilled when ultimately, when another takes Judas's office as an apostle. After God had judged him, he experienced the judgment of God in, in, his, in his death. And uh, another needs to take his office as an apostle. In verses 21 and 22, Peter lays out the requirements. So one of them 
uh, one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day when he was taking up, taken up, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And so notice Peter's concern right there at the end of verse 22. He's still thinking about the mission. They were witnesses. They were to be witnesses to both near and far, witnesses to the nation. And so they needed somebody who was qualified to witness to the resurrection. They needed to pick someone who had been their companion all the way from when Jesus was baptized by John to the day after his resurrection when he was taken back up into, into heaven. And those qualifications would assure that the apostles would accurately represent, uh, represent Jesus. As uh, David Gooding says, the, the disciples were, they had to defend, they had to define and defend the gospel. As we read through the book of Acts, there were issues that had to be settled, and they needed people that were qualified to speak. This is the mind of Christ. People who had been with Jesus, heard him teach, they had seen him raised from the dead. They had experienced him during those 40 days between his resurrection and his ascension. For example, in Acts 15, the Gentiles were coming to Christ, non-Jews were coming to Christ, and they had to decide, how much of the law are we going to put on the Gentiles? Well, they came to Jerusalem, they met with the church, they met with the elders, they also had the apostles there. Their wisdom was important to ensure that the church had the mind of Christ. So notice the process for finding Judas' replacement. They first put forth two qualified men. Verse 23, uh, and they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice. So he had three names, okay? And Matthias. Next, notice that they prayed and what they prayed. Just that they prayed is significant. They didn't just use their their best judgment. Look what they prayed. They prayed. And when you pray, you're expressing confidence in God. And they prayed, and then here's what they said. They said, you, Lord, and that's likely a reference to Jesus, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which of these two that you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And so uh, they believed that the Lord had chosen one of these two men to replace Judas. So it turns out Jesus chose Judas. Jesus would choose Judas's replacement. Okay, so they had this this confidence that he wanted to lead them in the future, that that his will would be done. And they believed that he would lead them through the casting of lots, which is a method used on many occasions in in the Old Covenant, in the the Old Testament. Verse 26, and they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Proverbs 16.33 says that the lot is cast into the lap. In other words, a human will cast the lot, but its every decision is from the Lord. And so the conviction was, the conviction was that God would sovereignly make his will known. So they had done their part to put forward two qualified men. From their point of view, either would be, would be suitable. They were qualified, but they wanted to know who the Lord wanted. 
the lot fell to Matthias. So he was the 12th apostle. Now, I don't want to spend much time on this, but there is a question. What do we do with this? Are we supposed to cast lots now? Is that, is that a thing? Well, the book of Acts, like really all narratives, it, it is descriptive, not prescriptive. And so it describes what happened. It doesn't prescribe what has to happen. And so casting lots, it, it happened. It's described here. And so it, it's not saying you should do this. It's also not saying that you shouldn't do this, okay? It's just describing what happened. We go to the epistles. We go to the teachings of Jesus for, for uh, prescriptive, what we should do. And so having said that, um, many people have, have made the observation that this is the last time casting lots is found in the Bible. You, you read the rest of the book of Acts and the rest of the New Testament and the, the norm is to pray for wisdom, and God leads through the person of the Holy Spirit, through circumstances, through many other things. And so, uh, generally speaking, that, that is the norm. That's, that's what we do. And so, where this passage leads us, it leads us to the same place as, it, as we, were, we, we uh, were led last week in the first half of the chapter. It leads us to having this confidence that God will lead us as we're people of prayer. We will never be like the apostles. We will never be like the early church unless we are people of prayer. We're just one chapter in, and we've already seen two times. They devoted themselves to prayer. They had a decision. They prayed, Lord, you know that you have the wisdom here. Show us. And so they were, de- they were devoted to prayer. They prayed when they needed decisions. They prayed when they were in prison. They prayed when they got out of prison. They thanked God. They prayed when they were dying. Stephen, in his dying breath in chapter 7, he breathed this prayer, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And so we end up this morning just the way we did last Sunday morning with a challenge to pray, confident that God will lead us. And so my question for you again today is, is there anything in this passage, anything in this message from this passage that has caught your attention? Maybe for you it was the first half of this sermon. Maybe there's some unresolved issue in your life. Maybe you are shaken by something and you are wondering if you can really be confident in God. You're wondering, is it worth it? Can I really risk anything? in being his witness. Do I really trust him? And so make that a matter of prayer. That's a front burner issue. You probably need to talk to somebody else about that. Somebody you trust, a spiritual minded follower of Christ that you trust, but pray about it. God wants to give you this confidence. Or perhaps you hear all of this and you're like, okay, I hear these words. I know I'm supposed to be a witness, but I have no idea what that means. I don't understand my giftedness. I don't know what's, what, what specifically that means. Well, good news, you're in exactly the same place that they were in, okay? They really were clueless. They, had no, they didn't have any details on how this would happen. But this is what we pray about. God, I believe that you're good. I believe you're sovereign. I believe you will lead. So, God, I'm on board. Let your heart be aligned with God and his plan. And so our confidence in Jesus, our confidence 
in his plan comes from this conviction that God is sovereign and God will lead. Father, you do know the heart of every person in here and you know what's been stirred up in our hearts this morning. God, for the unresolved issues, if there are some who are in the midst of a free fall, some who are wondering if you can be trusted, wonder if there's, it's even possible for them to be part of your, your plan to be a witness to people near and far. Pray, God, that you, would, that you would speak to each one, speak through your word, speak through your people, your Holy Spirit. We pray, God, that you would lead us to a place where we have this, this heart-level confidence in you, in your sovereignty, and in your willingness to lead. And so we ask, God, that, that you would do this work in our midst, the counter to privilege that you involve us in what you're doing in this world. God, may we be fully available to you, trusting you in, uh, in just profound ways. It's all by your grace, and so we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.